business, I guess, more retail business, yeah, that kind of stuff, which is fun. It's a lot more fun than doing photoshopping bull balls and photoshopping shit off bull's ass. So, yeah, definitely a lot more fun. But can you just explain to me the technique you use as a professional graphic artist to get rid of a set of bull balls? Like, what's the uh, what are the challenges there? I think it's it's um well you have to get rid you have to get rid of the pizzles. Uh, it's a technical term. The pizzles are around a uh, a bull's penis. Yeah, so I grew up I grew up on a farm, so yeah, yeah. So you have to Photoshop those out, and you also have to you know tidy up the the scrotum. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So it, it requires it, it requires some skill. What can I say? It's uh it's the life of a graphic designer. Well, that's probably a great way to introduce our guest for tonight or today, wherever you're listening to this. It's Kieran Jack. So Kieran is a graphic designer, obviously who has done much more graphics than just agriculture, which we'll find out. But the reason he's on the show tonight is more to talk about his comic books and the creative around that, which I think is how I got to know him originally. It was through a friend, and I think they had a mutual interest in comics. And Kieran's probably the only person I know that talks about comics that's actually, A, made one, and B, has tried to pursue it on any serious level. So welcome to the show, mates. And if there... We'll we'll go through the full chronology of how you got into comics and all that, but there's something that I wanted to know that I haven't found anywhere about yourself. What were you doing leading up to when you moved back to the area, and where did the skill on the graphic side come from? Was that schooling, or were you doing that somewhere else? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Josh. Um, it's It's been something I was pursuing a long time at school, and I think where I grew up was a very rural area that wasn't embrace of the whole art culture this is back in the 90s so it was a little bit more um you know you've, you if you want to study you have to go to university and that wasn't what i was primed in i wasn't i wasn't wanting to go to university so i, I took an apprenticeship kind of put the whole arts thing on the back burner and then when i came time moved to melbourne and still was doing the same career at the time and then i think it was being in Melbourne, the culture that it has there, it kind of in, it got me back into it. So a lot of um, photography uh, kind of started out with, and then I was getting a lot of tattoos at times, so I'd start drawing the tattoos. I drew all the time as a kid, and it still was there. But I thought, what am I doing with my life? I need to, I, I need to be, I need to have fulfillment in what I'm doing. I need to have enjoyment in what I'm doing. So I started looking into it. A lot of, um, I did a little bit of graffiti back in Melbourne. Um, it wasn't a lot, but it was enough to get me uh, – enough to <laughs> put the fear into you. Um, yeah. Definitely an experience. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, won't, but, we won't relitigate that. No, but at the same time, it, it did want me – it did push me to pursue this harder as well because, it, you know, the arts world is a lot more legitimate than the, the graffiti world. So um, – and they are merging more so now than ever before. As we've seen in Aubrey, Aubrey's got a starting to kind of have that movement, which is cool. But yeah, it's kind of a watching, you know, music, a lot of music artists, and I wasn't musically talented. I can I can play a little bit, but it wasn't my forte. So I grabbed a pen and I just started drawing again, and you know, just more or less just copying out of comics what was there and just building my own style. Okay, so where obviously, I mean, our stories are somewhat analogous that I actually grew up in. A- a small town. I'm not sure if whose was more isolated, so to speak, but there wasn't a massive art scene around there, and I had to move away also, more so to pursue my interest in playing music on a more mm. regular basis. Where were comics? How did you, I mean, I know that beyond maybe the Wolverine comic, which was huge at the time where I was growing up because of the cartoon was so popular in Australia, the, X, yeah. the original X-Men cartoon, I wouldn't have had access even being just an hour away from Aubrey which was a regional center, I wouldn't have had access to any comics up there besides Wolverine because of, and that was only really because it was powered by the popularity of the TV show. Like, where, yeah. how did you discover them and which ones were you into? I think, oh, first it was the Batman 89 movie that I think uh, I would have been two. And apparently as a child, I was just, I was, I was drooling over it. It was, <laughs> it was everything to me. And that was the, uh, that was what it started. And then my auntie started buying me Batman comics from the news agents, the local news agents, because like I said, there was nothing around. And that's where it kind of just, it, it, it was a snowball effect, more or less. Going forth, it was Phantom Comics, uh, Spider-Man Comics. My early childhood was more, very much the main superhero uh, culture. So I'd, I, I would grab anything I could. 
um, at the local newsagents because that's that was all that was there. You know, there were X Men comics. I wasn't I wasn't as big X Men. Um, it was definitely Batman, Spider Man, The Phantom. Shit, now you make me think. <laughs> Jeez, I'm sure I'm aged now. Um, that's depressing. Um, it's but, fine. Yeah, I mean, it was... this isn't a comic show, really, so it doesn't really matter. But a, a funny thing for me was that I had to make a pretty intentional choice between the things that I was really into because I was mm. massively into basketball at the time and I was really into music and mostly classic rock bands and I was also into hardcore, into the X-Men. And yeah. like as far as everything cost more money where I was growing up, just to get it there, you had to either order it, you never know if it was going to turn up in good shape or if you bought it locally, it cost a fortune. So I actually... Yeah kind of, I guess, in a way, abandoned all my interest in, you know, comics and graphic novels or whatever I was thinking about having an interest in in, and pursued pretty much all music. So Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and all these old bands that, you know, probably were more my friends of my parents' age sort of thing. That's how I got exposed to a lot of it. Did you stick with comics or was it something that floated in and out of your interest over the years? I think it floated in and out. There were there were reasons why. Like I think the first reason I stopped. That's like Batman blasphemy, right there, isn't it? You're not allowed to give up on the Batman. Uh, recalling it, it's Batman and Robin, the film that actually turned me off comics. Oh, <laughs> a glowing yeah. endorsement. Yeah, oh, I would have been eleven, I think, at the time, and just that just destroyed me. It was it was horrible, and I knew what Batman was because I'd read. Um, Neil Adams comics and I read the Batmans of the 90s and then I was yet to be exposed to Frank Miller's Dark Knight but I mean I was reading some of the best Batman stories from the 90s and watching that movie was like that's that's not Batman <laughs> so I think that just like it, it was like a switch it almost turned like turn it off and that's where I found music um, I also found Star Wars as well you know I dove into that more more of that kind of pop culture um, film, but and I'll, you know I searched for a lot more films, but yeah, it really like that movie, it, it it left a scar. It's funny you say that because it would sound funny to the younger listeners to this show. I mean, we're not massively old people, but now pop culture, the center of pop culture, is partly derived from the comic universe. It, yep. It's the driver of most of the big franchises that are out there, particularly in the film world, and there's a lot of television based off comics. They Those two things, like people think if that Star Wars and Star Trek and Marvel have always been there and they've always been part of that zeitgeist, but for us growing up, the comic world was very separate. I mean, Batman and Superman were probably the only things that were touching well, at least during the 90s anyway, that were touching on the mainstream. But they weren't a Star Wars level thing. But now that stuff's right in the middle. <laughs> so how do you feel about that as a comic fan? That It's, it's weird. It's, you know, having a, stadium, a football stadium named Marvel Stadium for me is like, looking at that, it's like, what, what world are we living in? Because this is phenomenal. It's, it's, it's weird. It is really weird. Um, the best example I can give at the moment is the Umbrella Academy. That's blown up uh, on it's a net- Netflix. Netflix show. Yeah, yeah. And back in two thousand and seven, it was the comic book that was released. So Gerard Way, who's lead singer of My Chemical Romance, massive fan of My Chem, and that's how it got me into his comic. And the comic is it's it is my x-men more or less um it's very much based off you know he read chris claremont's series um in the 80s and inspired him to create comics now i watched the series recently and i had a very big distaste for it because it doesn't keep him with what the comic book was um there are certain things i didn't enjoy about and seeing and seeing everyone else you know rave about it, it's like oh you you yeah that's cool you've watched the show and you've you have an appreciation for it, but there's this, this great source material that you're missing out on. So I'm, I'm probably about to get myself in trouble here. And I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm certainly not one of those people that thinks that, that that's not a legitimate argument. But no, there is certain things about the literary style and the comic style, which leans... I mean, it's not as obviously in-depth as a novel, for example. Yeah. But there is certain limitations to the medium and certain expectations that a television watcher or a film watcher has that a story will move at a certain pace. 
So and absolutely, you're 100 percent right yeah. there, Josh. So when, um, when you're, I mean, and it's hard. I know when, like, if I look back, I didn't love anything that revolved around Wolverine until Logan. I thought Logan was a really fantastic movie because mm-hmm. to me, they captured the darkness that was always bubbling under the surface of that character, and I think yeah. it's why people felt an attachment to him more so than maybe the other X-Men characters because there was something truly human about that darkness. <laughs> and yeah. like, But when you say that it didn't really follow the comics, I mean, it's a massive subject. We could go on forever about it. But do you mean mm-hmm. that it didn't have some of the – was it the spirit that was missing? Was it some of the key relationships or did they dumb it down too much? Like what is it that didn't grab you? It felt that the, there's two volumes of it now, or three volumes now, but um, they felt the first season crammed in two story arcs and mushed it together as one. Uh, okay, right. Don't get me wrong, I think all the actors were very well casted. Um, it was a very well casted show. There was a couple of elements I didn't like, especially with Hargraves. I think they'd made him to be a asshole, and in the comics he's not as bad as what they make him out to be in the show. Yeah. Overall, yeah, like I've got my nitpicks, and that's that's coming from a comic, and they're never go- they're never going to be able to. I understand that putting it from a comic aspect into a TV aspect is two different worlds, but yeah, it was hard for me to watch. <laughs> it's surprising how wrong talented people you don't get to make anything in Hollywood because just to just to greenlight something, even in television now, is millions of dollars. So, I for example, my favorite non-fiction author. Oh, sorry, my favourite fiction author is Terry Brooks, who wrote the Shannara series. I, if I take my attraction to how beautiful the women out, are out of Shannara and how good Ma- Manny Bennett is in pretty much everything that he's in, it was one of the most poorly executed. Like, the source material is massively rich and not really tapped by the pop... Not by other movies or filmmakers yet. It was a very rich story. And they managed to make a love triangle melodrama out of a fantasy story. In and once you get over the fact that the if you're if you're attracted to the men in the show because they're gorgeous, or in my case the women because they're beautiful, that only lasts a couple of episodes. Like I love it. I love Ivana Baquero. She was amazing in Penn's Labyrinth, etc. But there's only so much you can think. Wow, she's beautiful. It doesn't really carry the story. No. <laughs> No, I agree with them, man. I was the same when I first watched it as well. But if, like, just for people listening, one of the things that is weird about that particular story, and I'm, I would encourage you, unless you're really, really interested in dr- drama like that, I wouldn't bother watching it. But they inserted a love triangle in the middle of a story that didn't have one. Yeah, and that that was pretty much a TV trope. It was mm. to try and make it work as a TV show. Yeah, and. It was never in the source material, so it just seems so awkward and so forced. <laughs> and like, what I want to know is, Kieran, just in your opinion, like you and I have talked movies before, probably more movies than anything else. Yeah. How, how do filmmakers that truly love the material get something like that wrong? Um, studios. Yeah, it's it is. It's like they got notes from someone saying, "There's beautiful woman B and beautiful woman A. Can't they have some more conflict and have some kind of triangle in there?" Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a it's a chemistry that's seeing more and more at the moment that the, the studios are putting too much pressure on these creators to produce something that is either a, a love story uh, or it just it just fathoms me on how they're letting how they how do I put this I, I mean they're letting these creators come in on board and they they're hiring them for their talent. But then they're stripping away any talent they've got just to plot and pick and nitpick at the creation of a certain character. Um, it, it I, I guess, like I'll think of it like this: is Hollywood's kind of dead because they're just anything that it could be remotely good, they're just destroying with, you know, Suicide Squad for a, is a great example. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. Oversaturated trailers and poppy music to try and sell a movie that just was. It was a two-hour trailer in itself, hot garbage. Um, that was a that was a disappointment. I mean, I knew nothing about the story. I didn't know the characters, but just as a movie in and of itself, it was very poor. Yeah. So, I mean, that's where it's got to start, hasn't it? Let's just make the brilliant movie, and mm. then ho- hopefully, it does justice to the source material. 
Yeah, and I think it's 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 having faith in their in their creators, and it makes me as a creator less and less more inclined to want to do something big because what 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 restrictions am I going to have when I go and utilize these characters that I've been given? And a great example of that is at the moment um, DC Comics, the recent Batwang incident that happened. Now, it was a four-part arc. I'm pretty sure it's only going to be a three-part arc now. I think they're actually going to can the rest of it. And the artist, is a, he does a beautiful work at the art. And to see that go in the toilet just because Warner Brothers, who are in DC Comics, are cranky over Batman's wang being in a comic, it's like, well, have you ever read Watchmen? Like, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's there's wang in that. There's, there's, there's heaps of wang in different comics. I mean, what? What's the issue? Like, and that's that's the whole creative aspect of people, these big head honchos coming in and taking over. Yeah, it seems to be. Not that I understand the pressures of running a studio, obviously, mm. but it's their moral outrage always seems to be about things that are slightly sexually tinged when there's a lot of violence that these characters perpetrate to other characters and vice versa. They have violence perpetrated upon them, which doesn't even register. You'd think you'd be more worried about Batman, you know, being picked up and having his back broken in front of the exactly. you know, yeah. bunch of 10-year-olds than like some some source material you're going to base it on may or may not have a wang involved. <laughs> like, yeah. And even it, still, it's a, it's an adult. It's, like, it's called their Black Edition, so it's an adult series. So it's like, well, what's the problem? Yeah, and yeah you- what's, the, what's the danger there? Yeah. Like, um, and it's, it's, it's sold out. Like, there was one of the highest-selling comics for... Uh, 2019 and it's like yeah if it's got a wang in it and it sells comics so big i mean (laughs) that's it everyone gets a wang if that's the thing yeah that's it so that's probably enough wang talk i wanted to actually i wanted to actually move on and talk about your stuff (laughs) so we kind of covered in there that you grew up into comics you had some talent for drawing and you did i don't know whether we talked about it before we started or not you did have a podcast about movies at one point yeah, and, yeah. So let's let's just maybe cover off on what you were doing up until the first actual comic. So was there anything in? Did you have two podcasts or just the one at that point? So I had two. Um, the first one was the Halftone Effect, um, which is still going at the moment. Uh, it's it started off as just talking about you know comics that are you know up in the tops top ranks of reader readership. So Watchmen, Preacher, those kind of comics. And it kind of um, I was going to a lot of conventions at the time, and I knew of an indie scene, but I didn't realize that it was starting to grow so big. So this was about 2014. And from there, I started watching all these indie creators. And I was like, wow, there's actually an industry here. And it's, it's, you know, it's thriving. So I walked up to a couple of them and started talking to them. And I was like, hey, would would you want to jump on and do a quick interview? Um, Do this podcast? Anyway, so I was able to catch a couple of people at the time. And it's kind of weird because I did that, released it, put it on a couple of uh, indie comic pages, and it kind of blew up because I had a heap of other indie creators getting in contact going, oh, can we come on your show? We'd love to talk about our comic. We've got a Kickstarter coming up. We're doing all these releases, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So I, for probably 2015 to 2016, I had booked out an episode of a podcast each week pretty much. And it was great because I was getting indie comics and at the time I was growing very tired of the comics I was reading in the mainstream, so your DC and your Marvels, because it was consistent reboots. Um, And I was like, well, this is getting boring because they're just rebooting it to get an extra dollar for an issue one. So, And then I found this other industry, which was the indie industry, and it was not just in Australia, but it was over in America and the UK um, and in Europe. And so I was getting all these comics and I was, it was great to be able to talk to these people. And at that stage, yeah, I was starting to jump out of the mainstream. I was like, hang on, why am I doing my own comic? So after all that knowledge that I'd been talking to people about, I was able to utilize that, which is really cool. But yeah, I think it was good to be able to talk to these people and kind of, it did help build a following um, and it did help get my foot in the door. Um, And it still does, the podcast still happens now. It's very rarely though, because Comics make money. Podcasts at this stage don't for me. So, which they can. They certainly they can, but they mostly don't. Yeah. 
Um, so I, I kind of had to make an ultimatum was whether I continue doing the podcast and try and juggle podcast, editing, promotion, and creating comics. So the comics kind of won out. And, you know, the podcast's still there. I released an episode uh, earlier this week. And it's good fun to do them every now and again. And that's pretty much they're there to have a bit of fun and talk to new creators and get their, at least get them out there and have a bit of a following for them as well. Um, I've always been of the belief that it's, you know, it's all for one, one for all, not just one person on top. So that pretty much brings us really to your first release. I know I should have looked this up, Kieran, but I seen I saw so much of it at the time and I was tracking it all because was, it was exciting to see someone locally that was doing something the talking bread. Mm. It is. It was the talking bread, wasn't it? I feel like I'm getting that wrong, but I think no, that's right. Talking bread. It was the talking bread. Right. Can you take us through the talking bread, how that came about, and then maybe some of the stuff that you managed to pull off through that period? Because I know there was a lot of there was crowdfunding you managed to pull off. There was conventions and expos and multiple issues. So take us through that little journey there because it was pretty sweet. Yeah. Um... Funny enough, I was a baker before I became a graphic artist and I was sitting sitting in the studio one night and I was just like trying to think of something I could do for a story, you know, and it just came to me like, oh, cool, like, what, why don't I do it about my career as a baker, like based on actual characters and stories that happened in the bakery. Anyway, kind of developed, and this is like 3 a.m. in the morning and I was like, what am I still doing up? And I'm just like doing all these concept characters and scribbling loaves of bread and rolls and donuts and I was like what am I what am I doing what is this but um it kind of came to the the realization I was like well everyone's doing superheroes so what's different and in my teenage years it it was very much I was reading a lot of um Jonah Vasquez who's popular for Invader Zim but he was doing um Johnny the Homicidal Maniac um there was Scud uh the disposable assassin there was Oh, you know, Walking Dead, there was Tank Girl. I mean, it was all really weird comics I was reading at the time when I was a teenager and I was kind of, that was my influence on making something that was weird because that was what I was gelling to, again, back in my older in my older age. And, yeah, I kind of shot a script and some concept art to a mate in America who was actually running his own small production company at the time. And I said, hey, man, can you just look at this and see what you think? Do you think this is actually tangible as a comic? And he's like, mate, he goes, this is brilliant. He goes, you know, you're doing something different and I love it. Anyway, he goes, do it. He goes, just do it. Jump in the deep end and do it. So no experience in creating comics whatsoever, apart from the graphic artist side. I threw myself in the deep end and completely botched up the first issue. Pages were, weren't ruled up properly. They were done on A4, not on proper comic pages. The cover, you know, I'll, I pulled out the cover the other day and I was like, what the hell was I thinking? Um, it, it was just, it was a schmozzle, but I managed to get it out to crowdfunding. We made, I think it was $1,200 off a $500 campaign. So I was able to get it printed. I do remember that. That was awesome. It is, um, you know, extra loot for people. Um, exclusive artwork, you know, the original artworks, so some of that original artwork has gone now, but it was, it was a ride. Like, it was a month worth of stress, but it was fun. It took a little bit longer to get the comic finished than I wanted to, but I got it out in the day, and, you know, I, I look at it now, and I'm like, oh, you know, I have to go back and change it, but I've had a lot of friends say, don't touch it. It is it is what it is. Yeah. It's where you started from, and that's the joy of it. So probably I didn't really do any cons when after it was released, so I kind of waited about six months because I was in the midst of it. You're still getting used to it all. Really? Just with that process, can we just maybe talk quickly about when you went to crowdfund the idea, did you have it on spec only at that point or had you actually drawn some of what you wanted and also had a story happening? Because can can you tell us a little bit about, you said that you based it on some real characters and I'm thinking I can't really, although I don't want to bog us down too much, I don't really want to let you go by telling us maybe one funny story that was based on real life. Well, I have to be careful because there could be little, you know. That are... Yeah, yeah, but I mean, you you can you can tell it through the lens of the char- characters in the comic, obviously. The master, ba- the master baker might actually be based off a character I worked with. Uh, yeah. um, he <laughs> was a very interesting character. 
Yeah. But a lot of a lot of the characters there are, are references of people that I've worked with. Um, they are characters in themselves. It's a very interesting industry, so you do meet weird people, which is cool. But it was fun to be able to think back to the fun times in the bakery as well. Like it was very very tough work. Uh, very labor work and laboring work, sorry. And it was good to be able to think back in the good times and the fun, the silly things that happened in the bakery um, and utilize that and kind of build these these characters, this world. What's the normal hours for a baker, just for someone that doesn't quite get what a baker does? It can range from 11 p.m. as a starting point right through to 11 a.m. in the morning. Um, yeah, okay. So there are times where you're literally – keeping yourself sane overnight while trying to still work hard. Oh, not, Yeah, ha- try and have fun even though you're pro- maybe working with a very limited skeleton crew, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's, there was water fights. There was dough throw, flinging at each other. Um, I think someone wore a, a container of tomato paste one night. Um, coffee and music are your friends. They, they're the ones that kind of keep you sane. But there are times where you would find yourself um, coming – going into work after, uh, you know, maybe having a few drinks with some friends on a Saturday night and going into work on a Sunday and it would be a struggle. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was an interesting industry, but to be able to put it to pen to paper, it kind of, it, it was, for me, it was a real nail in the coffin experience because I was like, well, this is a, this is a part of my life now and it's been categorized into a, into a comic and that's cool. I can kind of like let that sail now. But, um, and that's what I always thought of it when I was writing. It was like kind of the final nail in the coffin for my baking career, um, writing my memoirs in a comic, I guess you'd call it. But no yes. names were mentioned in the comic, so no one can come after me, which is a good So you did say there, Kieran, that you held off going to the conventions, which is probably the thing that I've been following the most that you've been doing is you've almost been doing it like a punk rock band. You've been traveling continuously to different things, taking risks to be on buying tables and not knowing really what you're getting yourself into. And obviously, it's not like you're going there with a big company behind you that can announce you're going to be there and line up press, etc. You're kind of a one-man band. Did in that respect, or you more probably even more so at the time because you didn't, you know, have the following for the comic yet. How mm. long was it actually before you hit? your first convention and was that a big one or a local or yeah so the big first one i did was melbourne supernova that was my first big one so you just dive straight in the deep dive end. straight in but luckily enough i had a good friend from um queensland who was going to come down for it and he he was like do you want to come on my table you know i've got a table um i'm going to melbourne would you want to come down? We hadn't. We we just met through social media and talking in podcasts and stuff. And he's like, "Do you want to come down? It'd be cool to have you on my table." I was like, "Yeah, man, let's do it. Let's get a hotel. Let's make a weekend of a party." And and um, so I think we we're there for four days in total. And the first two days may have got out of control, uh, <laughs> drinking wise, and we may have severely <laughs> had ourselves hungover. Um, but. It was it was definitely an experience. And I, I still am. Uh, he hates me for saying this now, but I still am grateful because I didn't have to pay for my table. He put me up on that table, and my first convention I made one hundred and sixty dollars. You know that that barely paid for the accommodation. <laughs> so, I mean, it was it was about learning and what he showed me and what I can do at a convention. Kind of it inspired me to go back to the drawing board and go, okay, well I need to have more. I need to have more stuff. So essentially, Kieran, you went there with just issue one, whereas most people, for people that aren't familiar with cons and may never actually attend one, but are still listening to us right now. Yeah. Normally, there would be a selection of graphics kind of products that sit around a comic in some way that have a similar art theme, or Mm. you can tell they're by the same group, or there's there's more stuff to sell. It's the same as if you're in a band. If you have five different T-shirts, you're going to sell way more than if you have one t-shirt it's just how it is yeah so yeah I, I had one issue and i made i was happy with what i made because i didn't pay for the table or paid for accommodation you sold you sold something that's exactly. almost fucking impossible yeah uh, <laughs> that's pretty awesome but I, I did that and i was like all right i came back and the next one the next one was going to be sydney and we we're doing the exact same thing again i was going to be sharing this table with this other guy but this time i'd be paying for it 
I'd said, oh, he asked me if I wanted to do it again. And I said, I can't take any more of your money, dude. I said, I need to pay my own way. I need to start building myself up. So came back, jumped in the studio, pumped out some fan art prints because that's massive in the, the convention circuit. Fan People gel to the prints quicker than they'll gel to your comic. So getting them to the prints so they'll buy the comic is kind of a uh, catch-22. It's a, it's a plaw to get them on board to read your comics. So I did that. And in 48 hours, I pumped out issue two, and I'm talking 48 hours straight. And it was, I think it was, uh, it would have been maybe two weeks before the con, so I still had to get it printed. So I just hit the books and I worked hard, which I'll never ever do again. It was too, it was just too tight a time frame. Or? Um, it could have been like baking days again, where I was delirious by the end of it. Yeah. Okay. What was the making sense what was the quality of that second product like compared to the first one though um better um, yeah of course, i was i was using a3 paper so i was using double sized paper which and i was ruling it up properly i'd kind of you know done a couple of youtube tutorials going i probably should make sure i'm doing this one properly so <laughs> i did that still botched up the uh the size measurements but at the end of the day it was still a better comic than the first one and i was very happy with the end product did that delirium that you almost slipped into can you tell what mood a writer of a comic was in like you could with a musician? Like I remember I wrote a whole bunch of songs for one of the bands I was in with Rudy and Dan, the, yep. band, the band before A Candela Light. And, okay. And it was so obvious to everyone else that I was on a massive, crazy, crack-the-sky Mastodon trip. Mm-hmm. Even though yep. like, I couldn't play like that, that mindset of just crazy psychedelic prog was coming out in everything I was doing, even if it was just little flourishes. Could you tell reading back that you did that in like what would be called a just a cram session for the lack of a better term? Yeah, that's actually I, I actually haven't gone back and read it. Okay, recently, well, well that's, that's like that's a very serious artist thing to do there, mate. Like people that don't listen to their own music, etc. Yeah. I don't read what I write. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like. I know talking about the talking about's done now, but it's kind of like I don't. I, I sell it. I still got heaps of them to still move, but I was like, I kind of don't want to look at them again. Yeah. Uh, because um, that's yeah, it was, it was two years ago now. But it's um, it, I get oh, maybe I should maybe I should go back and read them and just think back to what I was doing that yeah that forty eight hours. I I listened to one of the Candela Lie recordings, our mm-hmm. our, our actual album from twenty twelve. Mm, okay. I think that was about six months ago because Dan had a couple of copies that were laying around on CD. And I'm like, I don't have any CDs in the car. I'll try that. And it was the first time since we recorded that, Kieran, that I didn't hear the stress and the mistakes and what was going on behind the scenes and what, what you know, how much work a certain guitar sound was to get. I just heard it as an actual thing. And I was like, oh, this isn't that bad. Because in my mind, it just didn't, you know, it wasn't what I had dreamt of, but it was actually better. You might find that the Talking Bread, those early editions, are better than you think. <laughs> you won't know if you don't read it, mate. Oh, we'll see. Um, or you can pay, pay someone else to read it that you trust. Well, people still come to me and say they enjoyed the hell of it, so I've obviously done something right. So, yeah. I mean, so, yeah. That, that's always good. We might just move it along a little bit. <laughs> yeah. with, with how many more – were you hitting more conventions – or was there usually a release for leading up to each of the big conventions for that next period of time? No, well, I think it was about for the first first year. I think it was about a. I'm going to say it was maybe one to two months between each convention. The first, really, the first year, I, I released three issues, so I had enough to push forward. But I did notice that the more you have, still noticing, the more I have, the more I'll sell. So. Sydney Supernova for us was the year that Chris Hemsworth came. And for a lot of artists that year, it was a flop because everyone spent their money to meet Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. And I recall he was a very expensive meet and greet for the photos, wasn't he? I I actually really suffered at that con because I put a lot of effort in getting issue two out and all these new prints. And it was hard. It, it you know, The second con I'd done and I had made, I think I made $80 that whole weekend made yeah. less than I did in Melbourne and Sydney's supposed to be the biggest one of them all. Yeah. And it was, you know, I was, the drive home was hard because I was racking my head out going, well, what did I do wrong? Because I knew content and I was at the table and I was talking to people and interacting with them. But after talking to a lot of other creators, it was just the general consensus that people weren't spending because they were there to see Chris Hemsworth instead. And he was so expensive that that was all their spending money. So that, 
was kind of like, oh, all right, here we go. I've got to get back into this and do more. So next one came around the month later back in Melbourne at Oz Comic Con and was, I had more stuff out. I had more prints out. I didn't have a comic. I kind of thought, no, don't do that to yourself again. It's You can kind of release issue three later on down the track. But, yeah, it was – they were more or less two – maybe one to two months apart in the first year for me, which was good. It helped to go back to the drawing board and get more stuff done, start learning – learning what was working and what wasn't working. Just before we move on from that, it sounds like you can really remember that Sydney con and probably not for the right reasons. Mm. I remember Rudy, our mutual friend Rudy, and hopefully he won't mind me saying this, I remember him saying to me just randomly, no one who's famous from a Marvel movie should charge more than Stan Lee to get a picture with them. Absolutely. I always remember that. I can't even remember, honestly, just where we were or why it came up, but... I think I think we were looking at the cost of going at the time that, and the, how much Hemsworth was charging, and it was just mind-boggling. And that's the thing. People were even saying it to us, like, oh, we're not spending any more money because we've just spent it on Chris Hemsworth. And it kind of was a kick to the teeth because it's like, oh, if we've, we've paid all this money for this table. We've paid the, the company this money, and we're not seeing any return on our profit or our, our, our – um, we're not seeing any return on what we've spent, and yeah. it was hard. But if I was to jump forward a year – the next Supernova was – it's been my best convention to date. Was that Sydney or Melbourne, that one? No, it was Sydney. So that was a year later at Sydney Supernova. Um, I had one of my biggest ever conventions, and it completely blew my mind. And uh, I was just – like I looked around what I was doing differently, and I looked at the guests. Um, there's still a lot of guests there, but I think it was – I had a reflection on myself more so. I was like, okay – You've known that the last one was so bad that you kind of came to this one and you knew you had to work harder to try and achieve a better outcome. Um, and I did. Like that, by the end of that corner, I was wrecked. <laughs> I was, I know the last day I did it by myself because my partner had gone, um, she was traveling overseas. So I had to work that. I had to work hard. And I was doing commissions and trying to talk to people because that's the biggest thing. You've got to talk to people, you've got to interact with them. And the great thing about the prints, and I don't know if you've seen the walls, Josh. Um, when you've been to the Aubrey one and if you've seen my photos, but yeah, have, the wall's yeah. covered in fan art because it, it draws a crowd in and that's the way you get them. You kind of interact with them going, you know, if there's, if there's a, an Animaniacs print or a, a um, Ren and Stimpy print, they'll come in and it's nostalgia and they're kind of drawn to it like a, uh, a fly to a light. I'm not sure if you you know Tristan Tate, but he's a, he's a good friend of mine and I've known him for a long time. He's a He's an illustrator and... I mean, he's always been doing this stunning work, but maybe six to 18 months, probably between 12 and 18 months ago, he decided to start drawing these incredibly intricate Nintendo characters. And I, I just saw just the amount of, like, he was doing it mostly through Instagram, and I think he might have even done, done some of them live on Twitch so you could watch him actually do it. And just the amount of buzz around different things he was putting out after that you could tell that he saw that as a channel of it's fun to do these. They're challenging. It shows how like the level that I'm at as far as a talent, but it's also something that people instantly know. And so do you think that if you hadn't have had that insight that oh, I really need to get the fan art stuff done and I'm assuming you were designing and drawing those for yourself or is that? Yeah, no, they're all I'm doing one right now as we speak. I'm doing a Darkwing Duck one. So it's all my original art. It's all... My, I take my weird interpretations on those characters. Do you think minus that insight that the cons would have worked for you going forward? Do you think you, or do you think that that was a key insight into making that stuff work? You know, it's a key insight. I I swear by it. There's a lot of controversy controversy in the creative world in the indie comics about doing prints. Yeah, and I'll argue till um, day D that it's the fact of the matter is that it pays for the booths. It it draws in a new audience. Those people that buy those prints, I've had return sales on my web store for comics. Um, I've had commission work out of it. It's People say, oh, it's wrong because you're stealing. It's, it is and it isn't because the studios and all that see it as, you know, it's kind of an art book. It's selling their work. People are going to go back and buy the comics. They're going to see that. They're going to relate to it. A kid's going to come out to and buy it. And they're going to go and buy, the, you know, they buy the Spider-Man print. They'll go and buy the Spider-Man movie. You know, it's a win-win situation. It's probably if you blow up too big and you're doing it, you know, if I'm doing it at San Diego Comic-Con and Marvel walks past and they're like, oh, hang on, buddy. 
yeah, this isn't the right place yeah. to be doing that. <laughs> exactly. And I can get away with we can we can get away with it to a certain degree. And there's a lot of controversy like going back to what I was staying with that a lot of India are like you you know, you're selling out. But at the same time, I'm making money as a as, as a business and and I'm paying for these tables and it's it's allowing me to do more cons and to get my artwork out there and to get my comics out there. And that's the end of the day is what I want to do. I want to get my comics out there. So if that helps get the comics into people's hands, I'll keep doing prints. Yeah. <laughs> until, it's, until the day they say don't do the prints. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's like if you have a couple of incredibly good covers that you do as a band, you're silly not to do them. You may, you maybe you don't do two of them in a half an hour, half hour set, but if you've got an hour to fill and you're a support band and you've got a really incredible cover song that wins crowds over and you don't do it, I think it's silly. So. Josh, you've just summed it up perfectly. I'm going to take that and use that when everyone complains about making prints. Yeah. <laughs> That's perfect, man. That's a perfect analogy. If you want to get really good at something mm. and it takes 40, 50 hours a week and you've got to do it for years before you're really brilliant at it, you need – like something has to keep you alive in the, in the interim. I mean, yeah. you would if your comic gets bigger and you're still doing them, then maybe there's an issue there. But yeah, I do, some, sometimes people just get so tied up in their own artistic pursuits they don't realise that well, day to day you still have to afford to live somehow. Yeah, and that's exactly right. So you know, it's it's it is what it is at the end of the day. Yeah. So I've taken us down a really sizable uh, detour there. So. A tangent, as Rudy would have called it back in the day on the, the <laughs> first podcast I did with him. Just with the one thing you did through, and can you just maybe, this will be a two-part question, tell us how many issues you ended up doing in total for the Talking Bread, and then can we talk about how you went about the crowdfunding thing? Because yeah. you're the only person I know personally that I could walk up to and say hello to in the street that's ever done crowdfunding and actually had it work for them. So, um, So the six issues... Um, in total for Talking Bread now. Um, there's, I've started my next series. But, yeah, I did six issues of that one. I was kind of happy to do that. I'd always mapped it out as six. There are a lot of um, people who in the indie community that kind of start them and they don't really finish them. And I was like, I don't want to be doing that. I want to make sure that I've – and I want to be doing this for a long time. Like my end game is to be doing comics for as long as I can. But I did that and I got the six out last year I mid – Last year, so two years from when I started it, I finished issue six. I was happy. I was content to leave it. And that's it. I'm done. Um, it was good. It was a really rewarding feeling knowing that I'd completed a story arc. And you never know. One day I might come back. I may not. But it, I know that that story is finished. But moving forward into that, it was the crowdfunding. <sighs> Everyone that I was talking to in the podcast, they're all doing crowdfunding. And I kind of utilized the knowledge that I'd taken from those guys and implied it into my first one. And I think the fact that I had a following through the podcast, it was a great way of establishing a crowd to support the, the comic, um, which they did. And then going forward, I kind of did the second one off my own back because I wanted to show my audience that I can do it. Did that. That was cool. And I was like, screw it. I'm going to do a third one because I want to do plush toys. I want to do enamel pins. I want to do stuff that I can't afford to pay for out of my own pocket. But because it was still early days, I was like, but I could do it on crowdfunding. And I went to crowd, I went to Kickstarter the second time. Um, by that stage, I had been working um, for an agency and I kind of picked up some new skills in the, the arts world. And I was like, okay, I'm going to imply this into my Kickstarter. Did that, did a higher goal because I had a lot more stuff to produce. And in the 30 day period, it was funded again. So it was really, it's really stressful because you, you know, those first two days are really busy and then it's called the dead period. So it's just quiet. There's no, there's, there's very little action happening. Well, sorry, that's a week. Usually the first week's really busy and it's the second two weeks are dead. So yeah, it was those two weeks in between that are just dead. Yeah, right. And that's a common term in that business, the dead period. Yeah, the dead period. Wow. You've got to have had a lot of really stressful weeks <laughs> leading up to something to ever call it the dead period. The dead period. Um, it's like the, I guess the retail period when, you know, after Christmas when no one's shopping. And you wonder how you're going to make it through to next Christmas. And don't ever do a Kickstarter in February. Uh, um, I learned that the hard way. Is that why everyone's credit card bills are due then, are they? Yeah, pretty much. And no one wants to support a Kickstarter in February. Uh, um, but, 
Yeah, I, I did the second one, second Kickstarter, and I had all this exclusive uh, loot or merchandise, and it, it it was crazy. People wanted the plush toys. They wanted the enamel pins. And I'm like, holy crap, there's an, there's something here. And then I was like, well, I'm going to do more of these. So obviously I was making money. I was starting to turn over money, and um, I was like, well, I need to – I want to start investing in my own stuff and my own product. So I started making enamel pins and stickers and – and at the conventions, it kind of helped boost all that stuff. So the, the Kickstarters have been great to get the stuff out into the world more so. I don't – and I don't know if you've seen any of the posts I put up recently because I've got a new one going at the moment, but I'm not calling them a crowdfunding project anymore. I'm calling them pre-orders because I don't see it as crowdfunding anymore to me. I see it more of getting my work out to people who um, who trust Kickstarter for starters, there's a lot of people who would rather use Kickstarter than use a website or whatever it may be. And also that it's just it's it's a great tool to use and a lot of people fear it to use it again after their first one. And I, I see that as silly because that audience who might just get their comics through Kickstarter, they might miss out on your other work. They might not go to your website. They might not know about your website. So using Kickstarter now more so as a pre-order system is uh, – it's a no-brainer for me. I'll keep I'll keep doing it as long as I keep getting them funded. I'm going to keep doing them. If it's if it works, keep doing what works. Not <laughs> yeah. not very much works when you're trying to do things creative. Like very little works. Yeah, that's 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 very true. That's very true. Um, you know, my traffic on my website compared to the Kickstarter is phenomenal. You know, I get more traffic on my Kickstarters. So, website's great to have, but. I'm going to keep putting them on Kickstarter because that's where people go to buy their comics also. And just you brought up in there that you're changing the language around your new project and we'll probably move on to that in a second, Kieran, because I try to keep these around an hour just so it's yeah. not a, you know, I can get get them out as regularly as possible. So yeah, yeah. with the, let's just talk about the new series quickly and then we'll talk about that in context of you calling them pre-sales. Mm. Is that really because... It's going to happen anyway, and you're confident enough in that platform that you, the audience is confident that it's a deliverable that's going to happen regardless where it is. And Kickstarter is just a reliable platform for it to happen. Like, uh, has it got that? It's obviously moved as a brand beyond just the place you get crowdfunded. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you're hundred percent right there, Josh. It is, and there is still our campaigns that people are waiting on. There is very much so in the comics community. There are comic books that people are still waiting for five years after they've been released. I won't name names and point fingers, but it does happen. Yeah. And it's annoying because it's actually it's aggravating, I'll say that, because it's it puts a tarnish on what everyone else is doing. Um, I used to go on the Kickstarters with 50% of my product finished. Um, since the last one, I've stopped doing it. I actually have it 100% finished because I want to give that assurance to my um, my backers that they're going to get their product and they know there's a product there. Um, I think that's more important than anything, showing them that there's something there that they're backing. It's ready to go as soon as it's, it's funded. And it's a bit easy for me because I write and illustrate, but for people who are paying an illustrator, they've got a – they've got budgets to work into and I understand that it's harder for those guys. So they can only have 50%, but it's really putting back on the people who are supporting your project. It's giving them the the comfort and safety that they're going to get that reward at the end of the day. So it is truly just a pre-order. That's absolutely. Just, yeah. Which I think is good that you've decided. And I think it shows a, I think just that language, that choice of wording shows that you have confidence in the fact that this is an established thing that's happening and there's if there is any connotation in someone's mind about it being a crowdfunding funding platform sorry that it really doesn't apply in your case so can we talk about the new series which i was loving the cover art for the few Mm -hmm. bits that i have seen so i haven't i honestly don't know anything more about it than that to the comment i should have sent them to you to read didn't think about that till tonight i was like i should have sent them to you could have read them that's okay oh well i'll probably end up backing I don't know. Has it already happened yet, or can I? Yeah, it, it's going at the moment. We're currently sitting on the second day, and I think it's sitting at. Just give me a second, I'll have a look. I think it's a roughly around. 
the 35% mark, which is good. It's solid start and it's still, you know, second day. So it's just about ex- exposing it to everyone now and getting everyone on board and telling people about it and hopefully it, it builds an audience. So I might get a few things mixed up here because I did a lot of research in one go, Kieran. So is this is the series called The Purgatory? So it's called In Purgatory, yeah. In the Purgatory, series- sorry. In Purgatory, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so it's – I was – okay, I'm going to start from the start as well as the story. I'll try and get through it quickly. No, you're right. I was, Take raised your <laughs> I was raised as a Catholic and I denounced my faith when I was a teenager. Uh, you know, I questioned a lot of things that were going on in my life and I questioned the fact of why do I go and sit into this, this place and pray to someone that does these things, these horrible things in the world um, personally and – you know, outside of my own personal space. And it, it made me angry. Um, it made me angry that we we, we idolize this, this this God. And I had a lot of I had a lot of personal issues um, that I kind of never really resolved. And so I started writing about it. Um, just how I felt and the messed up stuff, especially what's been going on in the news in the past couple of days. And it still makes me angry. Um, some of the stories I've heard are just it's sickening, and I kind of I wanted to tell my my point of view on it, not preaching upon anyone. I didn't want to preach, but I kind of wanted to show how I felt about the whole way a religion controls the world. Um, and I'm and I guess this series does do that. It also pokes a little bit of fun in it. Also, I have to kind of make it light because it is dark. Um, when I first gave the script out to a few friends to read. After the talking bread, and I wrote this after the talking bread. I had the concepts already. I just went in and did the story after I finished it because I like to finish the project before I start a new one. Anyway, um, I, I gave it to them. They're like, "Dude, this is really dark. Uh, this is a really dark story. It's not what I was expecting." And I was like, "Oh shit!" And they're like, "No, no, no. no. It's, it's, it's good. Like, it's really good." And I was like, "Okay, that's 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 all right. Whoa, don't do that to me." So the, the feedback I've had from it is really is great. Like I said, it's you know we're seeing a lot of passion and um, and thought put into this process. So I really am trying to interpret how I feel about religion and what it does to the world. And so doing this is going to be it's going to be interesting. The next issue it, it's going to relate on bullying, religion, um, violence. Um, there's going to be sexual themes. Issue two has sexual themes, and I've put a warning all through it that, that you know, this is not for mature. This is not for young audiences. This is for mature audiences only. Um, it's going to have personal aspects of what's happened in my own life in it. Um, it's still going to be a comic book at the end of the day, but it's going to be a lot darker than what the Talking Bread is. Righto. Well, Kieran, we're probably hitting the end of this one, so I just wanted to say a massive thank you for coming on. I know we've been trying to get this done for a while, and you have so much happening in your life as i do right at the moment that's all right yeah thanks for taking the time and yeah just if you can send me some links i'll put those in the show notes for anyone who wants to check out the kickstarter or the catalog for the talking bread etc yeah definitely yeah appreciate you having me on the show josh it's uh, it's been great to be able to talk about this with you righto mate well thank you very much and we'll probably call this one done too easy dude thank you very much all right catch you later cheers man thanks